<clears throat> seriously, we all think about uh, an order of worship and we think, well, it's going to be four or five songs. We prepare for the sermon. But in actuality, in ancient Israelite customs, you had the proclamation and the reading of the word. And then you had the singing that ended the service. And so this particular text today is so vitally important for you to see and understand what you do when you open your mouth and sing, when you use your lips as praise to God, which is one of the sacrifices that you bring today that pleases God. <clears throat> Next week, we're going to talk about verse 16 in Hebrews 13, verse 16 for Father's Day. So turn with me, Hebrews 13 10 through 16, I'm going to do your introduction of the spiritual sacrifices of praise. And then we're going to have some more singing, and then I'm going to finish the sermon. Okay? I know for some of you traditional Baptists, this just, that's killing you. You just can't take this. <clears throat> but this will be a blessing for your heart. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, to make holy the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, here we are, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We want to be a church that offers a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, don't we? Sacrifice has been a part of worship since the time of Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, the very sacrificial system that you see in the Old Testament outlined for us in the book of Leviticus finds its beginning and observation in the life of Moses. Y'all remember this. This is where the sacrificial system came from. Of course, there were some interruptions in the sacrificial system. We, we know that from studying Daniel because there were bad Babylonians and there were bad kings. And because of those two things, there were interruptions in the sacrificial system. For nearly a decade, uh, actually for nearly a hundred years, you actually had a century go by without sacrifice. They were in abeyance from 586 when you had the first deportation of the Israelites into captivity all the way up to 515 B.C. when Zerubbabel's temple was reinstituted and built there. In Jesus' day, this temple was called Herod's temple. The point is, sacrifice was always a part of the people of God. But in A.D. 70, a radical shift took place in Israel. And for the nation, the Bible, uh, we know that there was the destruction of the temple. In AD 70, there was an uprising and rebellion under General Titus. And it actually was a rebellion, rebellion that lasted to the end of the Jewish wars. 
Titus believed that if you could destroy the Jewish temple and demolish it, his statement was that you could wipe out Jewish religion and Christian religion. If you could wipe out the temple. So he believed this. The Jewish wars lasted for about three and a half years, which from 66 down to 70 A.D. or up to 70 A.D. And do you remember Jesus' prophecy regarding the temple? There would not be one stone left upon another. So what was Jerusalem going to do when there's no temple? Could you make a sacrifice with no temple? Could you? That was pretty much an impossibility. You have no tent, no tabernacle, no temple, no altar. So what did the Jewish people do? Well, they actually met a few years after this in a place called Jamnia. And the, the Sanhedrin got together and they created uh, a manual called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is decisively, decidedly anti-Christian. So the Mishnah would actually denounce uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Y'all understand that, right? When you're reading stuff, it will be uh, Roman numerals LXX. Maybe you've read that before. What is that? Well, that's the Septuagint. And the, the Mishnah would be absent of Isaiah 53. Find that interesting? Because that's the suffering servant. Because the Jews did not accept Christ. So the Mishnah stands even to this day as the central document of Orthodox Jews. So how do we view this? Well, instead of them making a sacrifice on the altar, they actually came up with a facelift to Judaism and said, actually, God will accept from us a broken heart. God will... He'll take alms. He'll take a broken heart instead of a sacrifice. And this is how they gave Judaism a facelift. One, again, they redefined sacrifice. So if you're tracking with me in this historical lesson, there's a problem that we see. There is no high priest. There is no altar to sacrifice at all. There's no temple. There's no altar, no structure of sacrifice. And Here's what the Jewish encyclopedia says about the Mishnah and the meeting at Jamnia. Unable, after the destruction of the temple, to observe these ordinances, they, the Sanhedrin, did not hesitate to declare in contrast to the sacrificial law given by God, which rejected the defective victim, which is all of us, God now accepts the brokenhearted as a sacrifice. Now, this is not what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches in the Old Testament that you cannot come to God apart from blood. Y'all do realize this, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Of course, they would add a few things of alms and such, but the problem's clear. It was the Old Testament scripture themselves that they held to that established the very sacrificial system ordained by God given to Moses for the forgiveness of sins. It was God himself who established the Day of Atonement and the covering of the people's sin. Instead of asking the question, why did God fix all of this so that we cannot go into a temple and worship anymore and make a sacrifice? Instead of asking that question about the temple and about the sacrifice being over, they tried to manipulate the system and change what God had definitively said in the Word of God regarding a sacrifice. So it wasn't in order for Judaism to be a bloodless religion. That's not why God removed the sacrifice physically in 70 A.D. 
He actually removed the sacrifice on the cross of Christ years before this, right? But what was spiritually accomplished in Jesus when the veil was rent from top to bottom was now physically seen right before their eyes in 70 AD. Why? Because they could no longer offer a sacrifice. And here's the deal. The ultimate high priest has already come. His name is Jesus. And if you'll read through Hebrews 10, 1 through 11, let me just read a couple of those verses. The Bible says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. See that? Chapter 10, verse 8, verse 9. Then he had added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hope you see the connection here. So, the ultimate sacrifice has already been given. Thus, the high priest was no longer necessary. An altar inside of a temple was no longer necessary. And sure enough, within a few short years from the writing of this book, the temple would actually be destroyed in 70 AD. So what was spiritually accomplished is now physically seen before their eyes. God could shut the door on the Old Testament establishment. Why? Because the once for all for forgiveness has been offered up for us and secured by the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Therefore, there was no longer any need. Now, question. Imagine if you were a Jew and you were living in this time frame and all of a sudden, everything that you have known in the fabric of your life is now gone. What would be your response? There's no priest, earthly priest anymore. Because the ultimate high priest is seated in his throne, on his throne, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there not anything for us to offer? What does worship look like under the new covenant? Do, do we have a sacrifice to even make? Now again, think about this. Those Jews would go over to a magnificent structure to make a sacrifice pretty much every day of their lives. In some kind of form. Uh, there was the structure of gold. There was the priestly regalia. There were priestly garments. This was all so impressive. There was the bleeding of the sheep. You'd bleat too if you knew what was going to happen to you. Right? There was the braying of the mule and the cows and everything else. In other words, there was the burning of the flesh that would go up in their nostrils. And this was their worship. This is what they thought brought them nearer to God. And, of course, it did in the Old Testament requirement of the law. This is what God had asked. Now all of this is gone. So what does worship look like? No more bells, no more whistles, uh, no more decked out priests, no more, no more ornate temples. Here are believers. Now at this time in Hebrews, just going to an ordinary house and meeting and having church. Now, How do you think that makes a Jewish person feel that had been completely absorbed, consumed? Uh, for these meetings in home churches, there was no more blood. This uh, certainly doesn't seem as holy as the old days, you would actually go in the new covenant to worship and you wouldn't bring anything in your hand to God, right? New covenant worship is radically different than old covenant worship. Now, some of you would say, I understand that my high priest is in heaven. I understand that there's no more altar, but do I bring a sacrifice? Did you come to church this morning with a thought in your mind that I'm about to bring a sacrifice to my God? Are y'all listening? Do you understand how serious it is to worship the king today? 
Do you understand how important it is for you to open your mouth and the fruit of your lips be from a changed heart that Jesus Christ accomplished for you? Not some kind of animal thrown on an altar. The Bible says in Hebrews that never, ever could ever remove sin. No matter how many times that repetition took place. The reason it couldn't remove it is given in the repetition. You had to do it over and over and over again. But folks, Jesus Christ gave himself once for all to give us our forgiveness. And therefore, do we bring a sacrifice? Well, the writer is laboring to say to them, yes, you have an altar, verse 10, and the altar is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do have a sacrifice to bring to God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. All that the old covenant symbolized has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian's altar is not standing in some kind of building. It's outside the camp. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And folks, this reality has life-changing implications. And that's why I, as your pastor, lead you to open your mouth and sing. I lead you to open your mouth and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to the ends of the earth. Why? Because that is, only, that is one of the only forms of acceptable worship to God. It's not some kind of blood sacrifice you're bringing. It's your life. It's everything that you have. Now, I've set the stage for my two-point sermon. Let's see how much singing you do and how much preaching I need to do after. Amen. <laughs> Father, we ask that you would help us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, the Word of God is perfect. Its doctrines are holy, precepts are binding, historics are true in your Bible. Your Word says of itself that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. We need all those things. We need reproof. We need uh, instruction from your Word. And help us today, Father. Uh, to see uh, with your Holy Spirit superintending your word as it's preached. Lord, help us to see uh, what you would have us to see in your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Life-changing implications. That's what takes place when you've come to the altar, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me remind you of just a couple of things this morning with the introduction in mind. First, we are to be resolute in our identification with Jesus Christ. That's what is being said in verse 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, and note the terminology, and bear the reproach he endured. Now, I know that's not popular in the United States of America to think about bearing uh, reproach, suffering, identification with Christ is what we're speaking of here. We do so bearing reproach for his name. In other words, believing in Jesus changes absolutely everything in your life. The writer here is going to use terminology that would have been extremely familiar to them. What's the terminology? Earlier on, in verses 10 through 12, he talks about the blood of bulls and lambs covered, that cover the sins of the people and the priest and his family but what happened to the carcasses? 
They were removed and placed outside the camp and burned. They could not take part uh, in this offering as a meal. It was burned outside. Christ gave his life outside the camp, meaning outside the city gates of Jerusalem, as an offering to God. And unless, ladies and gentlemen, you go out to him in full identification with him and trust his offering, you have no benefit of partaking of Christ's atoning death. What they did in a tent was no longer acceptable to God. The only one that's acceptable to God, the only sacrificial offering that can bring you to God is the offering of the Son of God. Period. So we go out to Him. He is accessible to anyone who will come to Him. If you want to meet with God, you must go outside the camp of all religious systems. Not a single religious system in this world will save your soul. Only the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone can save you. In juxtaposition to the old covenant and all those religious systems, when you come to Jesus Christ, you are made holy instantly. Remember, those sacrifices before could never fully atone for sin. It could not give you a perfect standing before God. But aren't you thankful for Jesus? He gives you a perfect standing before God. We are now willing to suffer for His name. When you think about what He's done for you, and you identify with Him, you think about terms of discipleship, uh, bearing your cross, leaving things behind, not keeping your hand to the plow, just following Christ. We think about all those implications And one of those implications is that we're willing to suffer for his name. Now think of this. For a first century believing Jew, it meant leaving Jerusalem. And all those bells and whistles that we talked about before. All the decorum and the temple and all that religious system. To go outside the camp and bear reproach for Jesus Christ looks a little different for us today, doesn't it? Because we are some uh, almost 2,000 years, not quite there, removed from a temple structure and a tabernacle. To go out for us and bear reproach looks a little different. For us, it means leaving the safety and convenience of what may seem to be secure, what may seem to not be threatened. It means to go out and be bold, to be courageous for the things of Christ. Even if we must give our lives in the process, so be it. That's what it really means to bear reproach for the name of Christ. In light of what he has done for us, bearing our shame, taking our guilt, should we not all be willing to pick up our cross and follow him? Should we not? Should we blush because we own the name of Jesus? Should we? The answer should be a resounding no because we have an altar. We have the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be willing to go outside the camp. What is our spiritual food? It is nothing less than the very life of Christ. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is our very life. So the grammar that is presented here in Hebrews goes like this. We have an altar. Therefore, because we have an altar, let us go outside the camp bearing reproach for his name. And then, because we have an altar, we also have sacrifices to offer. That's the the grammar. That's how this is flowing for us to see. We, We do have an altar. It's the only altar you can go to for salvation. And you do have 
sacrifices to bring. It's just not what they used to bring to the Lord. The writer tells us together with the rest of the entire New Testament, as followers of Christ, our whole lives are to be lived as a spiritual sacrifice because of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. It's because of the greatness and grandeur and the incomprehensive nature of redemption. What Jesus has done for us on Calvary, outside the camp, all of this brought together says that we, ha- we are to have a life lived for the Lord and we are to have sacrifices that are offered. It is the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that compels us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Don't get mixed up with strange teachings. They're everywhere out there, folks, especially in our day. Paul would tell you that if you don't preach the gospel that he preached in Galatians, then you are to be anathematized. There is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other gospel than the once-for-all sacrifice. And I'm telling you, there are, there are people out there. Just check it on Facebook. They claim to be Christian, but yet they have their systems they must follow. They've got their uh, rituals that they must follow. They've got all these sacraments that must take place in order for them to be right with God. It is vain. It is futile. It will not bring you to God. God is not joking when he says there's only one way to, to cry, to, to the Father, and it's through the Son. Now, you're either going to believe the Bible or you're not. And this church is going to believe the Bible. Right? We're going to believe what the Word of God says. So, understand something, folks. Our very life and daily sustenance comes from grace, which comes directly from the altar of God, the finished, which is the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is our altar. The finished work, not something that we can bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We, we can't bring anything there that can save us. Notice how the writer ends this in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. Boy, has that become parent, apparent this week? I hope you're not putting your stock in the cities of this world. The Bible makes it very clear to you that we do not have a lasting city here on earth. But we seek the city that is to come. I told you there were radical implications to identifying with Jesus. You're willing to to bear reproach for his name. You're willing to go outside the camp. You don't blush because of Christ. You're not ashamed because of Jesus. But you're not living for this world. Right? You're, You're looking for a lasting city, the cities of the earth, all earthly institutions will fall apart. All of them. Only the kingdom of Christ will remain. Aren't you thankful that you are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken? If you're saved today, that's the part. You know, the proudest nations of the earth have all come and gone, but Jesus lives on. That's the truth. We have an altar There's a reproach that's attached to giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my encouragement today is to be resolute in your identification with Christ. You're willing to go outside the camp. You're willing to identify with Jesus, not only in salvation, but also to bear reproach for his name. Philippians says that you've not only been granted through grace salvation, but you've also been granted suffering. We like the grace of being given salvation, but we don't like to be granted suffering, right? But if you identify with Jesus, and I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm going to tell you like it is. 
It's going to get worse in the United States of America before it ever gets better. I'm telling you, folks, we're just a few decisions away from them muzzling my mouth from preaching the truth. You, you don't realize this, but we're just right at the threshold of all... The hate speech, if you just call out homosexuality or you call out any form of sin that's given in the Bible, we're going to be shut down eventually. Are you going to be willing to identify with Jesus? Are you going to be willing uh, to take that kind of reproach for His name's sake? We need to think about this. It could happen tomorrow. It's already we're, it's foreign to us because we live in the United States of America. But this is the way it is for most of the people in the world who identify with Jesus. They're bearing reproach for His name. It costs them something to follow Christ. And it's going to cost us in the future. All right, number two. Ready? We are to continually offer praises, sacrifice, thanksgiving to our God. So consequently, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And he, he tells you what it is. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. In other words, we have a wonderful offering to Him in His presence. It is a sacrifice of praise. Isn't that awesome? Yes. Isn't it wonderful that you have all these lambs and goats and all these things put on the altar? That was real complicated. Read Leviticus. It's really simple now. The offering you bring after your heart has been regenerated and you belong to the Lord, the offering you bring is praise to God. He says, let us offer. That's a, that's, that's a technical term in the Old Testament. It would have brought all kind of overtones into their mind. We bring to God as an offering the sacrifice of praise. This particular sacrifice consists of praise. What is interesting is that every time this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, it means thanksgiving. So that's why I've worded your division that way. Sacrifice of praise, which entails thanksgiving to God. It means to speak of the excellency of a person, of an object, or an event. Did you get this? Bring a sacrifice to God. Offer it up to Him. And what is that? To speak of the excellencies of God. And to give Him thanks for it. So what is praise, ladies and gentlemen? Praise is the enjoyment of God that spontaneously flows out of your life. And if you have this, you can't be silent. C.S. Lewis once said, I had not noticed how the humblest and the most balanced minds praised most. While the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised least. Shall your pastor make application? If your lips are tight, you are a misfit. You are a crank, and you are a malcontent. That's just what C.S. Lewis said, you know. Think about this. We praise whatever we value most, and we try to get others to do the same. If you value Jesus as much as you should, then you ought to want everybody in this world to value him like you do. That is the secret to evangelism. That is the greatest motivation for sharing Christ with others. That joy that is in us, because of Jesus, we want others to have that joy. You know, we try to do this, don't we? We look at the things that we enjoy most, that brings about the most attention in our lives. Just think about when a bride walks down the aisle. Isn't she lovely? I mean, she's all decked out in white, and everybody's standing. Uh, wasn't that just a glorious thing? Well, the psalmist, in telling us 
that everyone is to praise God, he's following suit with that particular. You know, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. What is he doing? He's preaching a sermon to himself. Because our souls get weary, and we get our focus off, and we look, we're looking at worldly things. But David is calling us back, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's preaching to himself, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. In other words, you can't help but praise what you delight most in. What are we delighting most in? The praise not only expresses our enjoyment in God, but it actually completes it. Now, the more you read the Bible and you see the revealed thoughts of our God, the clearer we see that the reason God created this world and human beings is because he values his own glory. You can't read the Bible and not come away with this. God's aim in creating all things was ultimately his value of his own name and his own worth. Uh, In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, he reminds the people that if God forgives us, it's not going to be because of us. It's going to be because of his great name. If God does these things, it's because of his glory. We see this in the Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, That is what we're called to do. Worship is attributing the ultimate worth to something. It's no small thing to bring a sacrifice of praise to God. If you value Him and treasure Him and esteem Him for all that Jesus Christ has done, you can't help but praise Him. Now, the writer of the Old Testament covenant uses covenant language, and he puts it in new covenant spiritual realities. You're offering up sacrifice. To the Jew, that meant all the smells of blood and all those rites and rituals, but he brings it over to New Testament covenant language of relationship and ownership and us belonging to the Lord, we being his people, but what we're offering up is spiritual sacrifices of praise. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in light of the... What is the mercy of God? It's Christ and the cross and salvation. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a... You hear it? That's an oxymoron. How do you present a living sacrifice? Because understandably, understandably, that means that you die to sacrifice. But it's because of the spiritual reality of Christ in you that you're able to offer the spiritual sacrifice of praise. Let me show you another one in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm in the wrong book. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Jesus Christ. We have this morning taken part in what you were created and redeemed to do. To stand, sing, and worship. Pour your heart out to the one who saved your soul. You understand that's what you were redeemed to do. You were redeemed to worship the Lord. We learn in 1 Thessalonians 1 that Paul says, We know what manner of entry we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to worship the true and living God. Do you see the progression? They were separated from their past in order to consecrate themselves for the present. And all of it has to do in the end with being able to worship God. 
Piper has well said, missions exist because worship does not. If everybody worshiped God, then you wouldn't need to share the gospel, right? But you become a worshiper of God because of Jesus Christ. It's glorious. It's wonderful. You worship something this morning, no matter what spiritual state you are in. You realize that, right? Even if you're lost today, you're worshiping something. Money, job, family. You're worshiping something. You were made to worship. It's intrinsically inside of, of creation that God made to want to worship. We, when he saves you, when Christ saves you, he transforms you into a worshiper of the true and living God. Check that out. We know what manner of entry we had to you, how that you turned to God from idols to worship the true and living God, and he adds this, and to wait for his son that's coming from heaven, right? Those are all radical implications of the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith. So we marvel at his excellencies. Notice, we can only bring these one way. Verse 15, through him. What does that mean? There's no other way to bring a sacrifice of praise acceptable to God unless it's through Christ. You cannot bring an acceptable worship or sacrifice to God apart than it being through the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be through Him. We marvel, we extol and praise the Lord that there's only one mediator between God and man. And that is who? Jesus Christ the righteous. This is what the rabbis missed, did they not? When they were in Jam Jamnia, rewriting all of Israel's history, putting a facelift on it, they missed the fact that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. And we need to be willing to even tell Jews that there's only one way to heaven. Jews must be saved. African Americans must be saved. Red and yellow, black or white, doesn't matter who you are. You must be saved. You must come through Christ or you can't come at all. The writer does not want his readers to miss this. It's only through Christ. God is only available to you through Christ. Hear that statement. God is only available to you through Jesus Christ. You ought to say amen. That's the truth. Hebrews teaches that he's the perfect son, that he was the perfect priest, and that he was the perfect sacrifice. You know what that equals? A perfect salvation. He is. The finished work of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, the one Hebrew says never needs to be repeated. No other form of sacrifice needed. It's designed to bring comfort to all of believers. It says in no uncertain terms, there's nothing you can do to add to the work of Christ. When you come in here and worship the Lord, you're not adding to his work. It's finished. What are you doing? You're praising God for it. Look, think about that again. It's perfect. Every aspect. Perfect son. Perfect high priest. Perfect sacrifice equals perfect salvation. That's why the book of Hebrews is given. It's designed to lift all of us up. It sets us free from trying to earn brownie points with God. At the end of the day, how does God treat you? He treats you based on what Christ has done for you. How does God treat you? He treats you based upon what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary. When you are saved, that's how he treats you. 
Some of you are saying, well, preacher, if you keep talking like that, then people are just going to go out and live any way they want to. Christians are just going to live footloose and fancy free because all has been paid for and you're on your way to heaven. Okay, what's the alternative for me to preach? You want me to go tell everybody that you've got to work your way to heaven and keep people afraid? Well, that's what a lot of preachers do. They bang on the pulpit and say, you've got to work your way to heaven. And you put the fear factor in people. And you're like, if, if people are always afraid, then you've got them where you want them, right? Or should I just tell you that, it, that uh, if you don't work for it continually after you're saved, you're going to fall away and lose it? That's bogus. That's not taught in the Word of God. I want to tell you, if you preach the free and adulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, it will change lives. So I want to say, people who use the grace of God as an excuse to live like they want to, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you think you can go out and live any way you want to after you've been saved. The Bible tells us that in Romans 6, does it not? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Right? That's not the way you live if you're truly born of God and you're saved. So, let's wrap this up. How often should we do this? Continually. Y'all note that? Here's an interesting note to remember. The words sacrifice of praise occur in Leviticus 7.12. Don't you love the Old Testament? And here's what it speaks of. It speaks of the highest form of a peace offering under the Old Covenant that's made morning and evening. This thank offering was voluntary. But guess what it followed? The offering that made them ritually clean. Uh-oh. The primary purpose was to express gratitude for God that he made them clean at that moment. Right? The sacrifice is a prayer of thanks to God. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Has he made you clean? Has he washed your sins away? How could we continually? How can we not continually praise him for that? Right? This connects. In the Hebrew mind, they've known exactly what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Just as that thank offering followed the cleansing. So we are to bring a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips... The fruit of lips that have been saved by Jesus Christ. Could it be that the reason his praise is not constantly on our lips is because grace is not constantly on your mind? Could that be a reality? Could it be that the adoration to him that he deserves is not frequently found in our hearts? Therefore, there's not the fruit of praise on our lips. Out of the abundance of the man speaks. Folks, who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you adore? Could it be that the reason we don't open our mouths and sing, that's just one aspect of fruit of lips, got it? Or we never open our mouths and tell people about Jesus? It's just because we haven't been profoundly touched in our hearts by grace. We're not thinking about that in our heart, in our mind, because if you do, it's going to issue forth into your lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. Right? It is out of the abundance of the heart. So for the grumblers, you ever in that group? Go ahead and fess up. Yeah, you are, because I am. For the complainers, you ever in that group? For the whiners, you women don't say anything about your husbands. It's Father's Day next week, right? If we do all those things, we are defying the God that saved us and created us. Right? Because what should come forth is praise, the fruit of our lips, Christian living, is to be an act of worship to God. Now, we call the Lord's Day the best day of the week, don't we? 
I need to preach a sermon on sun, about Sunday coming up. I, I need to in the future so you really capture why Sunday is so important. It's not just another day of the week, folks. There are many things that I like to do in life. But there's nothing that I like to do more than to come into the house of God with the people of God and worship the King. I have to confess to you that there's nothing in life that I enjoy more than worshiping the Lord together with the people of God. Why? Because it's a force haste of what's going to happen in heaven. Now, I'd like to think that shooting my bow out in the yard on a Saturday afternoon is the most important thing to enjoy in life. Or to watch Nathan round the bases and score and, or hit a home run. Or, or to watch my boys in years past shoot a basketball. Or, or for me to play basketball. I'd like to think all those things. And we get prone to think even today that the height of enjoyment is watching our kids play sports. God forbid that you get trapped in that. The height of worship. Is to, is to understand the foretaste of the glories which is coming in the future. And that is the saints of God worshiping the king around the throne. We ought to worship him, folks. He's taken away our iniquity. So we praise him with the fruit of our lips. We verbally express this with gratitude to him. He's redeemed us through the once-for-all sacrifice. He's redeemed us. Our lives are to be lived for him. Now, I wonder outside of this place if our conversation is missing that keynote of praise. I wonder how often our conversation is void of telling others about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Isaac Watts captured this well, did he not? When I surveyed the wondrous cross. He says this in verse 2, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Wow, what a song. Charles Wesley said, if I could have written that song, I'd give up every song I've ever written. He loved that song. And then he ends it by saying, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What has the Lord done for you? I can promise you this, no one has ever done for you what Jesus did. Right? We ought to give him praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are, we are prone to wonder. We feel it. As the hymn writer said, we are prone to leave the God that we love. Lord, things within themselves are not necessarily idols. Lord, there are a lot of things in life that we enjoy. But Lord, help us to never enjoy those things more than Jesus. And the sacrifice, remembering the sacrifice that he endured for our sins to save us. And this text clearly reminds us that pleasing sacrifices are the ones from lips that have been redeemed. We make this sacrifice of praise and worship to you for all that you've done for us. We praise you for it, Lord. We do. Forbid it, Lord, that we should ever glory in anything save the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not going to boast in anything. Lord, thank you, Father. It demands our life, our all. Father, if there's someone here under the sound of my voice that's lost, may they go outside of the camp to Jesus. Not carcasses that are out there that are burned, that could never bring life. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only gave his life on the cruel Roman cross to save our sins, but also resurrected bodily to authenticate that you accomplished all that the Father asked for you to do, and you pleased him, and you made, it, you made a way for people to be saved. Once for all, made holy, sanctify your people. Thank you, Father, for it. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.